0: Last week, we started to talk about Mark chapter 13 and started to look at, okay, what's going to happen in the future and and why is Jesus talking about this? And and we looked at just a few verses last week because we gave a little bit of an overview on prophecy. and But one of the points that we made last week was that we shouldn't be concerned that the world is getting worse because it's going to get worse. In fact, Jesus said it must get worse to accomplish God's plan. Catch anything in the news this week? There's always some news, right? Um, Just some of the things in the news this week. I don't know whether you heard, but this coming up, Iran is going to be making a a nuclear achievement announcement this week. Get your heart starting to go a little bit. At the same time, they also urge the Hamas to continue fighting Israel. Those two things don't go well together. There was unrest in Syria. In fact, just this morning... There were rockets that hit the Homs opposition this morning as as there's debate and discussion going on. We had news this week that Greece... It seems like every other day the news was completely opposite. Either they're going to come out of it okay, or the next day they're not. They're going to go bankrupt, and the whole world economic system is going to collapse. Jesus said the world is going to get worse. There's going to be political unrest. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes... But that's okay, because these things must happen. I am in control, he says. Trust me. And so we we had all kinds of examples this week of looking at the news and trying to put into practice what we studied last week. And and not having our hearts and our, our stomachs churn and getting upset, but realizing that we shouldn't be swayed from our trust in God. We shouldn't be swayed from following Him. Today we want to take a jet tour through the rest of Mark chapter 13. So we're just going to fly and I'll just warn you up front, you will have questions or you should have questions that we don't answer this morning. There are books written and seminars and, and year-long classes to try to answer some of the questions that come out of this text and the text of prophecy. Our goal, like we said last week, is to take an overview and say, okay, what was Jesus trying to accomplish with his disciples? And last week we talked about the big picture of Mark chapter 13 is that he's trying to encourage the disciples in their faith, obedience, and trust in God during times of distress and upheaval. Give them enough warning that this is going to happen so they can rest in confidence that God is in control, this isn't surprising God, and they can continue to trust and obey and have faith in a living, active God who is executing His plan. And like we said last week, I'm convinced that we need that message just as much today. We need that trust and that faith in our God just as much today. Just by way of another piece of review, Don, if you can put that first slide up there. We gave a little bit of an overview about prophecy with the hills and the mountains. And we weren't prophesying that our mountains here in Southern California were going away. But we were just talking about how when With prophecy, as you look forward, and as Jesus and any of the prophets give prophecy, they are, they are looking at it almost like a two-dimensional picture where you're looking forward. In that picture, you may have hills, and you may have mountains, and you probably do. And the mountains refer to something that's further away, something that's distant in time, and the hills refer to something that's close in time. And in between, we just never know how big the valley is. And that's we mentioned, was called prophetic foreshortening, where time, when you look forward, is shortened because we don't know the gap in between. And then we also looked at double fulfillment and, and partial fulfillment, that there is often, with prophecy, one near-term event in the hills that then matches a long-term event in the mountains that foreshadows it, that allows us to look forward. And that's what we see happening in Mark chapter 13. I know that 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 may be like, okay, that's a little bit just of teaching, and but it's important to understanding the chapter and what Jesus is doing and figuring out what he's talking about. So today we want to start at verse 9. If you turn to Mark chapter 13, verse 9. And continue to see what was Jesus saying to the disciples and asking ourselves the question: how can we, as we deal with trials, as we deal with struggles, as we see what's happening in the world, How can we continue to trust, have faith, and obey? Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 9. The first point I already mentioned that we talked about last week was the world is falling apart and will get worse. Don't be swayed. The second point we see in verses 9 through 13 is that standing for Christ will bring difficulties. Stand anyway. Standing for Christ will bring difficulties. Stand anyway. And and Jesus is telling his disciples some of the things that they're going to go through, saying, Stand for me, don't run away from God and a faith in God, but trust me. Let's start reading at verse nine and take nine and ten first. But be on your guard. And he now moves from some general signs of what's happening happening politically and in the world to some specific trials. Okay, the world's falling apart. Now here's what's going to happen to you. Thanks, Jesus. And so here they are. And they're sitting on the, the, the Mount of Olives looking over the Temple Mount still. And we can switch to that picture so we get a picture of what they're seeing as they're talking. And Jesus says, but be on your guard. And again, it's the commands. He's trying to exhort them to be ready, to be watching. For they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. First point that Jesus makes is God can use their trials to spread the gospel. God can use trials and he often uses trials to spread the gospel. And he's preparing them for when they stand for Christ, what will happen to them, but he gives them the reason. And when we understand the reason, when we understand the plan of God, it gives us strength and it gives us courage to stand. He goes through and says some of the things they'll suffer. In verse 9, "...for they will deliver you over to councils." Those were the local Jewish courts. It's actually the plural of Sanhedrin. It's where they tried people in Jewish courts and on Jewish law. It says, "...you'll be dragged in front of the councils, in front of the Jewish courts." then the result of that, you'll be found guilty and you will be beaten in the synagogues. Publicly flogged. And the Jews did this as a way to, if, if someone was found guilty in their courts, in their councils, this was one of the punishments. We know from Paul and Paul's life that five times he received this kind of flogging from the Jews. And they would do 39 lashes because the law said you could only do 40 and again, as, as the Pharisees tried to get to the, the minutiae of the law, they did 39 so they wouldn't accidentally break the law and do 41. So if we did just one less from the 40, we're safe. Again, that, that wasn't the issue. The issue here is why are you doing it? You are opposing Christ. And Jesus says you're going to go through that. You're going to be flogged. Then he goes on, and you see a sequence here. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. And the governors and kings were the Gentile authorities. Isn't this interesting that this is pretty much what Jesus was about to go through in three days? To the Jewish authorities flogged, to the Gentile authorities. And he says at the end, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake in my place because of your faith in me. And we see here that it wasn't that they were being justly accused of wrongdoing and justly convicted, but their their offense is simply in standing for Christ. But look at the end of verse 9 and verse 10. to bear witness before them to be a witness of who God is before them. This may be the only way that some of these leaders will hear about Christ. If you read through Acts, over and over, Peter and Paul were were dragged in and put before authorities. And what did they do? Let me tell you why I'm here. There's this man, Jesus. You killed him. You're guilty of death, but he rose again. And you can have life in him. And over and over and over, God used their trials in a way to bring the Gospel where it never could have gone to bear witness before them, and then in verse ten we see the purpose statement, and, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, speaking of moving beyond Jewish circles, going to the Gentiles. It must first be proclaimed to all the nations and, and he's saying you 'll be dragged in that 's not the end because it 's part of the purpose of proclaiming who I am to everyone. Because God desires that all hear and that all are saved. And so his purpose, as he is talking about history and how he will wrap up history eventually, his purpose is still to reconcile people to himself. I'm challenged by that. God can use specific trials to spread the Gospel. And I'm challenged because I, I don't often look at my trials that way. I don't often look at the, the stuff that happens that I'm so angry about or so frustrated with or so hurt by as opportunities for a witness for Christ. You know, maybe the doctor or the nurse needed to see a Christian example and needed to hear about Christ. In that case, is a surgery worth it? Is a surgery that maybe we think is a trial or a health issue that we think is a trial? Is it worth it if someone hears about the Gospel for the first time? Absolutely. Maybe our neighbor that is out of work is willing to talk to us because we're out of work. And we can start a conversation and for the first time, we have a, a, a bond and an opportunity to say, this is how I'm getting through this. And we share the Gospel with them. Is it worth losing a job for another soul in heaven? Amen. See a difference in perspective? And we can go on down the line. For those of you in in Christian or in secular colleges, and and you, it is so difficult in some of those classes to stand up and stand for the truth. Is it worth getting ridiculed and hammered by a professor who disagrees with God's word? Is it worth it that maybe a weak christian in that room or someone that doesn't know christ might see your courage and be willing to stand themselves absolutely see the difference that jesus is getting at he says you're going to be you're going to be accused wrongly you're going to be beaten you're going to be they're in the, they're going to be martyred and he says you can either look at it like this and look at oh woe is me or you could look at it like this and say what is god doing through this in the world That's why Jesus is telling them what's happening. To make sure this is their focus and not this. God can use trials to spread the Gospel. So we read on in verse 11. We see, don't be afraid to share Christ. Trust the Holy Spirit. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. What a precious promise. Jesus is saying, as you go through this, the Holy Spirit, if you are open to His leading, if you are open to what He has to say, He will give you the words in that moment of crisis. Which means as we go through crises, our first step should be, God, help me to know what to say to bring glory to you, to bring others to you. What do we usually pray first? Stop! Stop! Make it stop, God. And if God is allowing it, He's allowing it for a reason. And our prayer should be, okay, what do you want to do, God? How do you want to give me words? Now, I've heard verses like this misused in dreadful ways by pastors. Well, I don't prepare for Sunday. The Holy Spirit will direct. And my professor at Talbot would always say, the Holy Spirit can direct you just as well in your study as He can from the pulpit. This is not an excuse to not prepare. And for those of you that are teachers here, for those of you that are involved in in sharing God's Word and maybe community groups, this isn't a call to say, I don't have to do anything. This is a call to prepare, but then depend on the Holy Spirit. He's also dealing with situations that you really can't prepare for. People dragged out of their homes and dragged in front of a court. And the Holy Spirit promises to give them words. Finally, the last two verses of this section, verses 12 and 13. Standing for Christ will bring difficulties. It will often bring having to endure the loss of relationship and endure hate for Christ. Verse 12, And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for My name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. It's a challenging passage. It's not very encouraging to the disciples. They're sitting here looking at this beautiful temple. And Jesus just said, brother, you'll be delivered over to death. Possibly by family members. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And he's preparing them for the persecution that is intended for Christ that is leveled on them because they stand for his name. But that last phrase, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, is a promise is a promise to say, but I am with my sons and daughters. I am with you. I will be with you to the end. And there is salvation. And there is salvation. I think of 1 John 2.19 where John is talking about those that fall away versus those that stay and how do we deal with that. And he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. And the teaching consistently in God's Word is that those that belong to Christ, those that are His sons and daughters, have been adopted, and He will help them persevere to the end. And He will hold them to Himself to the end. And so standing for Christ will bring difficulties. But stand anyway. Stand anyway because God will use that in mighty ways. Then we move on. Verses 14-23. to And and we have four four passages now where some are talking about the hills, the near events. Some are talking about the mountains, the far events. And then the timing of the near events. And then the timing of the far events. So it's a little challenging to work through. Before we step through it, I just want to put a a chart on the, the screen that gives us a little timeline. That we can understand what's going on. Because Jesus is about to, in verse 14 here, talk about something called the abomination of desolation. Abomination of desolation. And some of you might be saying, that's my son's room. (laughs) No, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about a very specific prophecy in the book of Daniel that they would have all understood, oh yeah, I know what he's talking about. For us, we don't. And so a little bit of background is helpful. We're going to blaze through this. Don, go ahead and click. Come back to Daniel receiving the vision. And Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to focus on. He also talks about it in Daniel 11. But that's back to 539, 538 BC. And he talks, this vision talks about 77s or, or 70 weeks that are, are also used as years. And he's using that to show what is to come. And they start with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And you see that over here. I should use the pointer. Decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 445 to 444 B.C. And that's the beginning of the 490 years, the 7 and 62 sevens. Okay, so so far so good. And I, I, I know we're buzzing through this, all kinds of questions, but um, we got to get over to here. And so these weeks start here and they end when the Holy One is cut off. When Jesus dies on the cross in 33 A.D., the end of 483 years. Incidentally, it works out exactly as predicted. Exactly as predicted because God's Word will come true. And so He dies on the cross here and then we have in in the Daniel prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, we have a gap, we have a break of what is going to happen next. And Don, if you can move to the next slide, just pulled off a couple of things and um, go ahead, go one more. Daniel then says the last week, because 69 is not 70, and 70 minus 69 is still one, and so there's one week left of, of seven years. That's what the week represents. And in Daniel, we know that that begins with the Antichrist signing a covenant treaty with Israel. That begins the last seven And the last seven years is the tribulation. So this is just an overview. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, this entire area of tribulation and when the the second coming of Christ would be referred to by the word those days. In those days, this will happen. And that's key to understanding Mark 13. In those days, that will happen. The rapture of the church will happen right before that. Then we move into the tribulation. And then over here, the millennium and the new heaven and the new earth. I put a little picture of a mountain here, because this is the mountain range. This is what's coming a long way off. Now in between here is a gap that sometimes is called the church age, but we know it's a a time that we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And in that time, we have the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is a partial fulfillment of most of the prophecy that's going to happen that is still to come. And this is the what we talked about last week that Jesus says is the beginning of the birth pains. And he makes it clear, the end is not yet. Okay, so Jesus is seeing this gap that they don't see. The end is not yet. Now, we saw in verse 4 and at the beginning that these events are often used with the words these things. Because the disciples came and asked, when will these things take place. And so Jesus, when he's talking about these things, is generally talking about the hills at the beginning here. When he's talking about those days, he's generally talking about the end of time and his second coming. Okay, got the fire hose all, all drenched now, just with all kinds of... But that gives... A, Don, if you could just leave that up. That gives us um, help to understanding what's about to, to happen in verse 14. The next point, the next section... Here, point number three, the vilest of things and deepest distress will happen, but God is watching over you. Listen to Him. God is watching over you. Listen to Him. We know from last time that God is executing His plan. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint the most holy place. So we know that Daniel here is saying these events are all about God ending time. Dealing with sin, judging sin, bringing His people to the holy place and communion with Him. And so God is watching over us as he executes his plan. Let's read starting at verse 14. <clears throat> but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then the, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There is all kinds of talk about what is the abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation? In, in Daniel chapter 9 is where it's first re, First talked about, we mentioned that. He says, and he will make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he will put an end to to sacrifice and suffering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. You're probably thinking, I have no idea what you just said. I have no idea. Here it is in a nutshell. The abomination means literally something that's detestable. And what the prophets and what Jesus is talking about is something that is so detestable that is brought into the temple that worship stops. That the temple is so defiled by someone we know in in 2 Thessalonians that will proclaim himself to be God that worship can no longer happen in the temple. Now, Don, if you can click again. In Daniel... That Daniel 9.27, we see that that happens in the middle of the tribulation, the middle of the 70th year. That's when the final fulfillment of this will be. But the the disciples knew that this had already taken place in some form. Back about 168 B.C., a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, he, he came in and he set a statue of himself up in the Holy of Holies before the altar. And then he proceeded to sacrifice swine, which was completely despicable to the Jews, swine to himself on that altar. And that was something they referred to as the abomination of desolation. And that was the first partial fulfillment of this. The second partial fulfillment of this, which is where Jesus is, is starting to talk about and then used to talk about the end, is this is going to happen again in A.D. seventy. AD 70. And in the years AD 66-70, we see the zealots come in and they take over and they, they position themselves in the Holy of Holies. They start bringing people in and murdering them in the Holy of Holies. And then we see General Titus come in in AD 70 and put up standards of Caesar and worship Caesar in the Holy of Holies. And that's a partial fulfillment of what's going to happen at the end of time. And so as we see what Jesus is saying here, he's doing two things. He's letting them know what's about to happen in their lifetime so they can be ready. But he's also moving to say, this is a picture of the bigger bigger items that are going to happen at the end of time. As he confronts sin, sin like a cornered animal will, Satan like a cornered animal will fight back. And one of the ways he will fight back is to try to be an abomination. Abomination. And we know that these things happened. We know that things in Israel and in Jerusalem during the time of AD 70 when they were surrounded by the Roman armies, when a siege was happening, things became completely unthinkable inside that city. People were resorting to cannibalism because they didn't have food. Josephus talks about that the bodies were stacked where you couldn't even see the ground. Soldiers had to clamber over heaps of body in pursuit of fugitives. And so that was the hill, the near-term fulfillment of this prophecy. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and Jesus here is saying, this is coming, but I love you, I'm watching out for you, and so it's time to leave when this is happening. For the sake of the preservation of the church. And he goes on in verse 15, Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house. Their, their housetops were flat, and they could, have, they could um, dry food up there. It could be like a, a family room of sorts, and you had an external staircase. He's saying, don't even go back in the house, just leave. He goes on to say, And let one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And we see a picture of what will be partially fulfilled in A.D. 70, of the horrible circumstances, but of God's protection saying, it's coming, this is the time to get out, so you're safe. What an amazing picture of God's care in the middle of his judgment. Care for those that have accepted him and know him in the middle of judging sin. And when God says run, it was time to run. He was doing that for their protection. Verse 19 and 20 again begins to, we have to remember it's this double fulfillment with both the hills and the mountains as he's talking about the tribulation. And it's going to be bad in eighty seventy. 70, but we know that it will be the worst at the end times in the, that 70th year of what is still coming. In verse 20, we see again God's loving care in the middle of His judgment. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. He shortened the days so that they wouldn't be wiped out completely. Verse 21, He goes on, And if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or look, there He is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. Be watching. I have told you all things beforehand. And in the point I said, but God is watching over you. Listen to Him. Because what we see in verses 21 and 22 is other voices coming and saying, God isn't taking care of you. God isn't watching out for you. Really? Really? You're going through all this? If you follow me, I can help you. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. God is watching out for you and protecting you. He is watching out for his own in ways you don't even know. So don't be deceived. Be watching out. Don't be deceived that someone else can help you. And again, there's application today. As we go through many tribulations in our lives, nothing compared to what's going to be happening, but times where we are doubting God and we are wondering, is He even watching out for me? And He's saying, I told you to run to the hills. I'm, I'm cutting the day short. I'm working and you don't see it. Listen to God and no one else. He is watching out for his own. Never doubt that. The vilest of things and deepest distress will happen, but God is watching over you. Listen to him. And so in verses 14 to 23, we see Jesus talking primarily about the destruction of the temple, but then coming into the abomination of desolation and the tribulation at the end times. Then we move on, verses 24 through 27. And he switches gears here. And you see that right from the first word, but. Which means this is a contrast. But in those days, after that tribulation, and he's pointing them, and he's using the terminology they understood to say, okay, now we're talking about the end of time. Now we're talking about the second coming of Christ. And point number four there is, Jesus will come back and gather believers, have hope. Jesus will come back and gather believers, have hope. A child sitting in a store that has lost their parents, screaming and crying. Why are they crying? Because they don't know where mom and dad are and they don't know that they're coming back. You can take that same child and mom says, you know what, I just have to go run and, and get a can of soup. You sit right here, not that we would leave our children alone. Don't do that. You sit right there and I'll be right back. And that child will usually be able to sit there because they know that mom and dad are coming back. That's the purpose of this passage. Jesus will come back and gather believers, have hope. Let's read it, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, speaking of the one He just talked about that the disciples will be going through, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. They won't miss him. Verse 27, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And we see Jesus here now talking about the second coming, talking about the end of time when he is judging sin, but bringing his own, his sons and daughters, to himself. And Jesus here is using a variety of Old Testament images. Isaiah 13, verse 10, For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And so they would hear this and they knew that it was God's judgment coming. But the hope is that He says, I will gather My elect to Myself. The judgment isn't coming for for those that know Me. It's coming for those that are still in sin and have chosen to defy Me. We can go on with verse after verse where this is coming from. Revelation 6. This corresponds to the sixth seal that you see in Revelation 6, verse 12. But the key here is to see this section as a statement of victory. God wins. Sin is judged. Those that are His, those that believe in Him, are brought into perfect, holy communion with the King. That's a good ending. It's a great ending. And that's why this gives hope. And it was to give hope to the disciples who were about to go through the worst trials that they could ever imagine. So we move on to 5 and 6. We need to keep moving. As Jesus now goes back and we'll talk about these things, we'll talk about the, the, the near things, the hills, the destruction of the temple, give some times for that or some, some signs for that, and then He'll go and talk again about the second coming. So verses 28-31, through 31, God will do what He says. Expect Him. God will do what He says. Expect Him. Look for Him. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. And he again, Mount of Olives also had fig trees on it. We, we saw that before. And he points to one and says, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. He's just saying, you know plants. When it starts to have leaves, you know that summer's coming. Makes sense. A leads to B. Verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. And keep in mind the the word these things. He's probably talking again about what's coming close and and what he was talking about in verses 5-24. through When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What I say will last. I will do what I say. There are all kinds of conjecture of what it means. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. We don't have time to dig into that deeply. Some have said this was a mistake by Jesus. Absolutely not. Jesus was sinless. He was God. He did not make mistakes. So some have said that this possibly is... is saying that, um, Israel would not pass away. This generation has a, a sub-meeting where it could represent descendants. And so, so Israel would not pass away until all of these things takes place. And that's a possibility. I, I would list that as one of the possibilities. Another possibility is that Jesus here is using the words these things to talk about the hills, and He's saying this generation, the disciples' generation, won't pass away until these things take place. He doesn't use those days here. He uses these things. The destruction of the temple. Because then in verse 32, He moves to, but concerning that day or that hour. It's a contrast. I've told you about these things. But that day and that hour, let me tell you about that. And I think that's probably the most likely. Not something I'd die over. Except to say that God's word is true. And Jesus did not make a mistake. And if there's a problem here, it's a problem with my understanding of his words, not with his words. But heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. There's a truth there when we go through difficult times and when we go through trials and when we see the world falling apart, when we see our life falling apart, the constant that we have is God's Word. It is God's Word. And I would encourage you that in, in times of distress, come back and read God's Word and not just just read it superficially, but take sections that apply to what you're going through and read truth into your life. Don't let your mind run with you and and think you know what truth is. Go to God's Word because that is truth. And if you're struggling with grief, come and read verses about God's comfort. If you're struggling with, with who you are, come and read verses about that you are an adopted son and daughter of the King. If you're struggling with depression, come and read verses about the joy that God wants to give you. If you're struggling with understanding circumstances, Read verses over and over and over about God's sovereignty and His plan. There are so many things that we don't heal from because we never come back to truth. And we try to rationalize our way to feeling better. And God says, my words will not pass away. Never underestimate the power of God's word. Finally, the last section. Told you we would fly. Verses 32 through 37. Jesus can come back any time. Stay on the job. Jesus can come back any time. Stay on the job. Verses 30, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And he, he, again, he changes his phrasing from these things to that day or that hour. And he's probably talking about the end of time, the second coming, the day of the Lord here. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And we could spend a lot of time on the phrase, nor the Son. Okay, how did Jesus not know? And this is not saying that he wasn't God. Please understand what, what Jesus is saying here is he's referring to the incarnation where he voluntarily gave up the exercise of some of his divine attributes on his own. It doesn't mean He didn't have them. It doesn't mean He wasn't God. But that He gave up the knowledge of this. And it's known by the Father. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then we see the command in verse 33, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. This entire section, 32-37, through are sort of the marching orders. It's, 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 the, it's where Jesus was going with the whole chapter. Again, like we said last week, it wasn't to give some great timeline that we would know all the details. It was to give enough of what we need to know so that we would obey, have faith, and trust Him. And so this section, I believe, is the key section in the whole chapter because it's, it's the result. It's what, what God wants us to do with it. And the first thing is don't obsess over the time. It will distract you. You do not know when the time will come. Be on guard. Keep awake. Stay alert. Stay about what you're supposed to be about. But it's not about the date. It's not about the time. See, if we knew the date, like, like we said last week, if we knew the date, if we knew the time, would we be diligent about our work? Yeah, maybe the week before. Because God's a forgiving God. So I can just live for Satan now. And and the week before he comes, I'm gonna maybe even the day before. Let's get as much time out of this as we can. And and, and I that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, not only are there all kinds of things about the, the joy of walking with God. But God knows us. He created us. If he wanted to give us a date, he would have. But he didn't because it doesn't accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Be on guard. Keep awake. So don't obsess over the time. It will distract you. Second point there is we see the master knows the journey and is working his plan. The master knows the journey and is working his plan. Let's read on in verse 34. Because Jesus says, you don't know the time. And then he tells them why and and what comes out of that in verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And in this picture that Jesus gives to help explain, he says the master is going away on a journey. He knows what he's doing. He has a purpose. He leaves his servants to do a job while he's gone. And so as we think about end times, we need to not obsess over the time, but the second thing is know that the Master knows the journey. He knows how it's going to end. He has the power to bring it to be. That's not our concern. Your concern, my concern, is to do the task he left us to do. That's it. To do the task he left us to do. Which leads to letter C there. Live knowing He could come back at any time. The imminence of Christ's return. There is, Christ can come now. He could come this afternoon. He could come tomorrow. There is nothing left that we know of. In His plan there is, but there is nothing left that we know of that is keeping Him from returning. Live like He can come back right now. And the question with that is what do you want Him to catch you doing? What do you want them to catch you doing? Those of you with kids, you you know how it works. You give your children an instruction, and you ever just sort of stand where they can't see you and watch? Now, I know none of of the kids here would ever do something different, but some kids you've heard of, maybe they they look around and mom and dad aren't watching. And so I'm going to do what I want. And then, you know, you sort of walk by the doorway, and what do they do? And they start doing what they're supposed to be doing. When we think of how we're to live, this is how the imminence of Christ's return, that Christ can come back at any time, begins to help us deal with holiness. To draw close to God. Because the the, the practical question is, do I want God to walk in right now? He can return at any time. What do you want Him to catch you doing? Letter D, stay awake, guard your walk. Stay awake, guard your walk. Three times in this little section, we see be on guard, keep awake. Therefore, stay awake. Finally, in verse 37, stay awake. And He's, he's not literally saying we can never sleep again. Praise God. But he's using this to say spiritually, stay alert. Be on guard. Do not let sin in the door. He uses the example of the doorman who's standing at the door and he says, stay awake and watch. That's because only Christ should be let in. And we're to be diligent to not leave room for sin. To not leave room for Satan. Just because the master's away doesn't mean the mice will play. I used to always hear that out on the job site. I'd be out helping a company with computers, and if the boss was out of town, I can't tell you how many times I saw different behavior and heard employees use that phrase when the cat's away, the mice will play. Yeah. It speaks to character. And Jesus is saying, stay awake, be faithful. Sin is crouching at your door. Do not let it in. Titus 2, 12 through 14 talks about that, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he ties dealing with ungodliness and waiting for Christ, expecting his return. See, if I don't really believe he's coming back, I don't trust him, I don't trust his word, and I I don't have the same grounds to follow him and to obey him. He's coming back. It could be today. Stay awake. Finally, letter E. Faithfully do the work we have been left to do. Faithfully do the work we have been left to do. Man goes on a journey, he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, it says in verse 34. Each with his work. How do we wait for Christ's return? We do what he's asked us to do. We stay alert to sin, we do the job he's asked us to do. We stay in the word, we stay faithful in prayer. We stay serving and loving one another. Those are the things that He's called us to do while we wait. This section is the point. This is the point. All these things are happening so that you will stay awake. So that you will faithfully do what I've left you to do. So that you will expect my return at any time. We need to be a people that are constantly looking up. Not literally but constantly expecting the return of our Lord and Savior. And excited about it. He's coming back. He's coming back. Let's pray. Lord God, I praise You for Your plan. That You will judge sin. That You will judge those that don't follow You, Lord. But that You will bring Your elect, those You have chosen, those that have accepted You, that you will bring us into perfect, eternal communion with you. And Lord, that's why we look forward to you coming back. Lord, that's why we're excited, and that's why we want to live like you're coming back today in every way. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that don't know you, that have not given their life to you, that don't know the power of of your death to forgive sin, the power of your resurrection... Lord, that today would be the day that they would say, I want to believe in Jesus Christ. I choose to believe in Jesus Christ. Lord, that today would be a day that they would move from those that will be under judgment to those that will be in eternal relationship with you. Lord, convict hearts. Bring people to you. Lord, for those that know you, I pray that we would live like you're coming back today. Excited about it. Doing the things that we want you to catch us doing. Not letting down our guard because we just don't know when you're coming. Thank you for your promises. For your care. In Jesus' name.